This past week, a study was released that really astounded me. I guess it didn't surprise me, really, but it was just astounding that women and minorities bear the brunt of medical negligence when it comes to misdiagnosis. I want to talk a little bit about what this study shows, what are the facts, why does it happen, and most importantly, how can you prevent this from happening to yourself or your loved ones? And with us, uh, we have a person who, a lawyer, who is uh, one of the uh, Karen Conti Show regulars here. Uh, that's Elizabeth Cavani, managing partner of the law firm of Cavani and Kroll. It's one of the best personal injury and catastrophic injury firms in the nation. She and her firm have a history of earning hundreds of millions of dollars in settlement and verdicts for vic- uh, victims of personal injury, medical negligence, police misconduct, uh, car accidents, workplace injuries. Um, and uh, Elizabeth is great. Welcome to the show. Good to see you, Beth. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be back, as always. Yeah, and thank you for coming in the studio so I can see your beautiful face. Now, Let's talk about the study. What does the study show? And I know you've you've looked at these issues in the past, how minorities get treated by the medical profession. Yeah. And I I want to preface all this by saying I love doctors. I love the medical profession. I love I love people that, that give service to us. But we're not disparaging them. We're we're talking about reality. Right. Yes. Right. So um I think what was alarming to the people that um, heard about this study. Um, It's actually not a study. It's a compilation of studies that have been done by different institutions. Johns Hopkins, it was published in the American Medical Journal, um, the British Medical Journal. And it's been a problem in society for years. Um, But I think what strikes people is the statistics that how much difference there is in the treatment of women and specifically minorities in the medical in their medical care and treatment than white men um i think it it's uh one in four hospital patients that are diagnosed um to that are sent to the intensive care unit are misdiagnosed one in four so that's 25 percent but of that 25 percent nearly all of them are african-american or minority it's just so astounding yeah i mean the fact that a quarter are misdiagnosed to begin with is scary for all of us right how do you and how do they um opine that this is happening why would it be that doctors are treating minorities and women differently and misdiagnosing more often you would think that doctors just look at everyone the same way and just you know do do what they do um without regard for this it just i think you start with the premise that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the united states um, and that is shocking. Um, actually, it might be the fourth now that COVID came in the pandemic, but it is in the top four um, causes of, of death. Wow. Um, so that in and of itself is striking. So you look at that and then you break it down epidemiologically as to who is being affected. And white men, not so much. Black women, the worst. Um, black men and white women um, fall kind of in the middle. Um, And I think it comes down to, at the very, very bottom, it comes down to communication, socioeconomics and communications. Um, Doctors have, it's documented and been studied that they have a tendency not to take a complaint as seriously from an African-American woman 
as they will from a white man. Mm. That hurts me. It is. It's painful. But um, they can be complaining of the exact same thing. But the bias is that the man and the white male knows what he's talking about and wouldn't be here if he really didn't have a problem. Whereas the minority presenting doesn't really know what they're talking about. Doesn't really know. Like, and they say their chest hurts. Okay, you know, they might have a pulled muscle. Uh, you know, whereas a white male, work them up right away for a heart attack. This could be a heart attack. And so the approach to the individuals um, right off the bat is shocking. Shocking. But it's been studied by academic institutions and proven to be um, fact. So... And I, I don't know if you know this, and I don't know that the study went into this, and, and maybe you don't know this, but it doesn't matter if the doctor is a female or a minority. It does not. <laughs> I was I was hoping that wasn't the answer. No, it does not. It does not. I mean, and yes, it has gone into the studies. Um, are women physicians more likely to take women's complaints more seriously and listen more carefully to women's complaints? No. Are minority physicians, which are still a much, much smaller percentage of the overall physician base, but are they more likely to take a minority's complaints um, more seriously or um, at more value um, in their diagnosing of the complaints being presented? And unfortunately, the answer is no. And this is kind of off topic, but I have also thought of this when it comes to lawyers and their clients, because it is my theory that female clients aren't treated as as um, aggressively. So for instance, if a woman wants to take action, whether she wants to sue uh, a business or sue, sue her business partner or whatever, that lawyers, including women, will talk them out of it because they don't want the woman to be subject to litigation, which is very difficult and, and that type of thing. Whereas men say, I want to litigate and sure enough, you bring the lawsuit and you litigate. So yeah. I think this is per- this permeates all of these business relationships in a way where you have the squeaky wheel or knowing that men, you know, uh, you know, have kind of ruled or white men have kind of ruled the world for a long time. So like you said, they know better or they're going to they're going to they're going to yell, you know, louder if you don't give them what they want. Yeah, they're going to yell louder. And also, I think the stigmatism still is there that a white male won't go to the doctor unless something's really wrong. Whereas we women, we've got nothing better to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're not working jobs and raising children and uh, taking care of husbands and uh, taking care of elderly parents. We don't have anything better to do than run in with with, uh, minor complaints. So, no, just uh, being facetious. But um, I think there is still some stigmatism that um, if a man comes to the doctor's office, he must be really sick. That's just amazing. Um, We're going to take a break. And I want to come back and talk a little bit more about this and what you can do to kind of counter this. And what can the whole medical profession do to try to change this horrendous statistic? We're here with Beth Cavaney 
on WGN. Welcome back to the Karen Conti Show. We're going to be taking your legal questions, uh, especially if you have any questions regarding personal injury and medical malpractice. We'll be doing that about 4.30. The number at the studio here is 312-981-7200, 312-981-7200. Right now we're with Beth Cavaney. She is one of the superstar attorneys, managing partner of Cavaney and Kroll, personal injury, catastrophic injury, medical malpractice. Um, we're talking about this new compilation of studies, as as you clarified, that says that um, handling of medical negligence cases um, is worse for minorities and women. Now, does this study show anything about older people, too? or and, and do you know anything about how older people get treated in the medical profession? Well, the study that came out recently in Health Leaders and that referred to um, the summary and that referred to the... Um, studies being done at different academic institutions didn't address the aging population as part of those particular studies. But there have been other studies that do talk about the problems of elderly patients and um, it gets more complicated as people get older because their conditions become more complicated. Their physical conditions, they have more comorbidities. You know, they have high blood pressure, they have high cholesterol, they might have um, a valve disease, they have um, eye issues. And so they're on a list of medications. There's a multitude of things that could be going on. They might be a cancer survivor. And so they're coming as a more complicated patient than, you know, a 25-year-old college graduate who's, um, you know, never had any medical issues and never had surgery before. So um, I'm going to my text. It says man bashing Sunday afternoon. And if that came across, we're not bashing men. In fact, I just told Elizabeth a story about my late husband, who I had problems with milk products when I went out to dinner. So I would say, please, no butter, no. And they regularly would serve it to me. But when my late husband would say, all right, neither of us can have it. Like, we can't do butter. And it always, it was right. And all I'm saying is, it's not his fault that they're listening to him. He's not a bad guy. He's a great guy. He liked butter. (laughs) He sacrificed his butter for me. Uh, But what what we're saying is that men get treated better in in these situations. Nothing against them. Right. Um, And then it says, I have another texter from 847. Interesting. Do you ever think that maybe white men go to better doctors? (laughs) Yeah, well, absolutely. That is definitely part of the issue. That's a really good question. Um, Because a lot of the reason that um, not necessarily women, but minorities um, receive lesser medical care and are more susceptible to misdiagnosis or mistreatment is the quality of care that they're receiving. And it's, it is based on socioeconomic factors. So, you know, um, again, not man bashing at all, but um, a white male who's living maybe in downtown Chicago in a high rise and getting their medical care at Northwestern Memorial Hospital is probably going to see a different caliber of physician than a black woman in the west side who's going to Loretto Hospital to have her baby. 
um, or an independent community, local community hospital. It's kind of like how we talk about the rural areas of our country and how we're losing lawyers there. We're losing doctors there. You know, nobody wants to go work in those areas anymore. Everybody wants to go work in the cities. Maybe COVID changed that a little bit. But generally, that's been the flight of individuals and professionals for the last 20 years. Well, the same thing is true for medical care. You know, doctors, the most qualified doctors want to go work at the most established hospitals that have the biggest budgets, the biggest research department, the most money. And that is not the hospitals that are in um, underprivileged areas. So um, I think that's absolutely a correct question, a really good question and a really good point. So um, let's get practical for people out there. This is for everyone. This is for everyone who goes to see a doctor, goes to the hospital, or or you have a loved one who's doing it. What are the things that people should do to make sure that they get the best possible medical care? Number one, educate. Um, Educate yourself. Um, We all have smartphones, every single one of us. When you hear a medical term, Google it. When you hear a potential diagnosis, Google it. Mayo Clinic has an amazing website that is really user-friendly, that defines terms, what the signs and symptoms are, what the treatment is, what the diagnostic tests are. You can learn about any condition that the doctor is talking to you about within two minutes. Um, So, um, number one, educate yourself, for sure. Number two, advocate. have someone there, if at all possible, with you. Um, my mother's 81 and uh, was just in the hospital. My sister went to every single doctor's appointment with her, every single one, and took notes. And do you think that she had a different appointment because my sister was there taking notes? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely she did. That doctor definitely spent more time and paid more attention because there was a third-party observer there. Um Number three, um, demand attention. So educate, advocate, demand attention. I mean, do not be afraid. We are well past the age of whatever the doctor says goes. You don't want to question the doctor. You know, our parents, our grandparents were raised that way, that, well, he knows our family, he knows our family history, and whatever he says is going to be right. Mm-mm. They don't know us anymore. We don't have those relationships anymore. This is the first time you're seeing a doctor, the second time, or they've spent 13 minutes with you over the course of five years. So demand some attention. Ask for the CT. Ask why you're not getting a test done. Why are you getting discharged so quickly? Talk about it in the doctor's office. Demand your time. Don't. When they say they're done, you might not be done. You might have more questions. So there's some truth to the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And uh, sometimes you got to just be the squeaky wheel. And if you know you can't, bring one. Exactly. I would hate to have you as an advocate with me. (laughs) The doctor would go running the other way. I have done it, actually. There was a judge here in in Cook County that had breast cancer, and she asked me to be her advocate, her medical advocate, and I went to all her doctor's appointments with her. And this is a very well-spoken, educated woman, but she appreciated the importance of advocacy and having somebody there outside the patient-physician relationship, taking a note of what's going on. Well, advocating for yourself is is not always easy, even for lawyers. You know, I mean, sometimes it's easier for me to argue for somebody else than it is for my own 
situation. Yeah. It's just, that's just the way it is. And sometimes it's overwhelming. I mean, yeah. you're sitting there with a physician who knows a hell of a lot more than you, and they're telling you that you have breast cancer, and the blood drains from your head. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're supposed to be able to listen to what comes next, or what the type, or what your treatment's going to be. And all you can do is think breast cancer, breast cancer, breast cancer, breast cancer. Right. So yeah. when people are in that fight or flight mode, that adrenaline's going, it's hard to make decisions too. There are studies that actually show that, that you're the part of your brain that makes decisions is just kind of impacted by those shocking things and the stress. And uh, so it's not necessarily something that's, you know, that makes you a bad person or makes you a weak. It just, it's the way it works yeah. When, yeah. You're, when you're in that trauma mode. Um, you know, you told me a statistic when we were on break that about infant mortality. Can you can you relate that relate that to us? Again? Yeah, yeah. So um, there are um, studies that have been published that of the developed countries in the world, the United States is the leading country for um, maternal and infant mortality during childbirth. So the death of mothers and the death of infants from childbirth. Um, we are number one of all the industrialized countries. How could that possibly be? Why is that? Is there a reason? Um, there, uh, Yeah, it's multifactorial. Um, again, it's a much higher percentage um, in the minority community. Um, it is... There, the statistics have been um, as high as seven to one um, of minority infants um, compared to white infants um, will suffer uh, death at childbirth. Um, are seven seven are seven to one more likely? Um, it's again, it goes to socioeconomic. Um, where you're having your baby, where you're getting your prenatal care, if you're getting prenatal care. Um, a lot of minorities don't have health insurance, so they're not getting prenatal care. They're having their babies at um, lower, at an earlier stage, so the babies are low birth weight and they're more susceptible to illness or injury from there. But I think there's also still a real stigmatism in the United States against cesarean sections. So we doctors tend to not take a woman to an operating room when things are starting to go south in a labor and delivery, but rather just push forward with that vaginal delivery and have the baby the good old-fashioned way. It's going to be easy to recover from. Don't take the baby in. Don't take the mom in for a C-section, despite what's going on. And I think that also has a big part to do with um, why the the death of of mothers and babies in childbirth, which is something we don't expect. No, absolutely not. Um, let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll be taking your legal questions, especially if you have a malpractice, personal injury issue for Beth. If not, I'll try to take it, or we'll both try to take it, 312-981-7200, or text to that same number, 312-981-7200. Great. Just let us be lawyers. 
We're here with Beth Cavani, and uh, we're talking about personal injury, medical malpractice, but we're taking all your legal questions here. 312-981-7200. If you have a question about family law, you have a question about uh, any criminal law, I'll, t- I'll take a stab at it. We'll try to answer your question or at least point you in the right direction. Uh, and Beth, if you uh, if someone wants to contact you, how would they contact you? Uh, the best way to reach me is at Cavani Kroll, K-A-V-E-N-Y. K-R-O-L-L dot com. And so uh, you had a caller who said, I missed the website that you referred to about, um, uh, you know, to, to look up, you know, sim- all the symptoms and educate yourself. Mayo Clinic. That's- so the Mayo Clinic is a academic institution in Rochester, Minnesota, and they are one of the front runners, uh, front leaders of all medical issues and conditions. And they have an amazing website that's real user friendly. And uh, she also asks, um, is it better to get an appointment earlier in the day so the doctor spends more time with you? (laughs) I wouldn't want to be the 445 slot. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And like I always say, the intern who's uh, staying up two two days in a row, I I don't want him either or her. Um, In any event, uh, so I had a... Uh, I had an email a couple weeks ago who said, I was in a car accident several years ago. I chose not to get an attorney. I settled the case on my own for $5,000, uh, but now it looks like my back might need more, uh, might need surgery or more treatment. I'm losing wages because I have to go to the chiropractor. Mm. Do I have any recourse to go back in and reopen it? I had no idea, basically, that my back was so badly injured. Mm. That is unfortunate. Um, the answer is no. Um, You know, I think anybody who has a personal injury um, action or a medical malpractice action or thinks that they might, the best thing you can do is reach out to an attorney right away, right away, Um, because they will, you know, in that situation, what I would have advised the woman is let's get all the information, let's find out what the insurance is, and let's sit tight because you have two years to file a personal injury lawsuit from the time that you're injured. We want to preserve all the evidence now, get the car photos, take photos, do whatever we need to do. But let's sit tight and make sure we know what your injuries are before we settle your case because you cannot go back. Once a settlement is done, the case is over. And the insurance companies, you know, this is what they do for a living, and they'll step right in and try to settle as soon as possible if you know to make sure that they they sew it up you know oh. they want to make sure it's done and you know if there are lingering problems then you're out of luck that's why they'll call you that very day or the next day and try and get you in a recorded statement saying and, i feel great i'm yeah, fine how yeah. are you fine yeah <laughs> well, before <laughs> before your injuries really start to set in yeah right yeah unfortunately uh and actually i just was thinking of this i have a lovely uh former client of mine who i've stayed in touch with for many many years and she called me up and she had a hip replacement that just went really wrong mm-hmm. and she showed me the pictures of it and i i don't think i've ever seen anything so horrific um mm-hmm. But the problem was because she was in such pain and was going through so much uh, and, and, and surgery after surgery to correct this problem mm-hmm. um, that it was like probably three weeks before the statute of limitations and she couldn't find a lawyer to represent her because no one wanted to take a case when you have mm-hmm. to do some due diligence before you take a case. So right. the other thing I think is important is if you think you have a malpractice case or you have a personal injury, even if you're going through trauma, like get get a lawyer, you know, yeah. try to get that in, in action because 
the law doesn't say, oh, you were in pain, you, you get an extension on that. Right, right. I gave an example before of going to be a medical advocate for um, a judge here in Cook County, but there's been many times I've been in hospitals with my clients that are either medical negligence victims or car accident victims or train accident victims um, and going through terrible, terrible recoveries. A state trooper who was burned head to toe. I spent a lot of time in the hospital with him because it's important for me to see and to understand what they're going through as part of their as part of being the best lawyer that I can be for them, understanding their injuries and also talking to the doctors and developing a relationship with them like, hey, we're all on the same team here. Your patient, you, me. We're a team. We're working on this together. We're going to get the best result for this person from who's ever responsible. That that makes sense. And, you know, and I guess at some point, if you have to go to trial on a case, sometimes the the person is now healed, or at least partly healed, you know, and so there's, you know, you knew it, you knew that person when he or she was going through the worst part of it. So you can convey to the jury how serious an injury is to get them to understand it. Yeah. And often I'll have a videographer go into the hospital. I know the um, general counsels at the hospitals and I'll get permission for my videographer to go in there and take video of the individual at physical therapy, laying in their bed, trying to eat um, at different stages of their recovery. So there's a lot you can do with a lawyer when you get them involved at the very beginning. Um, And certainly, you know, not to say that Gosh, a year later, you find out you had breast cancer and it was misdiagnosed or it wasn't told on your last mammogram that you shouldn't contact a lawyer then, that as soon as you find out, you should. Um, But earlier is always better. So I had uh, an emailer, and I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but you just uh, mentioned a misdiagnosis of breast cancer. And it was was someone who was writing and saying, my mother was um, had her mammograms like she always does. And it looks like there was a misdiagnosis because all of a sudden now, a year later, she's got uh, stage four breast cancer. And uh, the question was, who's responsible? There's one doctor that this the son was a son, I believe, uh, said, you know, I I don't want to sue this doctor because he's just is great. And I, if he if he's responsible, I don't want to assume. But who gets sued, and what do you have to get together to give to a lawyer for a lawyer to assess whether there is a viable case? So at my office, I have a nurse that works for me full time. And so you come into our office, you tell us your story, you bring medical records if you have them, we order them for you and pay for them if you don't. And we get your medical records based on your story and where you received your medical care. And we review them internally, both me and the nurse will review them and see, okay, what are the issues here? Where do we question the care? Where do we think something might have gone wrong? And then we get an expert from Northwestern or from an outside academic institution um, to take a look at it and explain with us what the cause was. In the case that you raised, Karen, um, about the breast cancer, a woman doesn't just wake up with breast cancer stage four. Um, I mean, that the reason you have a mammogram every year is because it's a diagnostic tool. It might miss it one year, but it's going to catch it the next year. And the same thing with a pap smear and cervical cancer, same thing with a colonoscopy um, and colon cancer or prostate cancer. Um, There's a lot of things that we do on an annual basis test so that we will catch a diagnosis within the treatment period. 
And um, so in that case, who would be sued? Who would we look at? We would look at the films and see who read, what radiologist read those films every year for the past few years. And when did the lump or the cancer start to show? Where was it missed on the film? Um, were they seeing their primary care doctor? Was their blood work done? Was there something in their blood work that would have shown? Was there was the fatigue or their clinical condition starting to change? So, but really, it's going to be a radiology case, most likely, if it's a failure to diagnose breast cancer. So, that seems to be, a, I won't say common, because I don't, this is your realm, not mine, but what, you know, if it, if it is a missed diagnosis from a radiologist, does, does your primary care doctor also look at that as well? Or is it just the radiologist who's looking at these things that we have to rely on that physician? The primary care doctor is relying on the radiologist, too. Just like you, they're usually not looking at the films. They're usually looking at the reports. And so they are relying on the radiologist. So what happens when a radiologist doesn't see the cancer? What, What happens? Is it is it is it something is it inexperience on the doctor's part is it just not paying attention because is it clear when you look at a film that there is cancer um i know this is getting into the weeds but it's yeah i hear about these kinds of missing the diagnosis so many times yeah and you know there's definitely um studies done on that that talk about the bias and um why cancers are missed and how often they're missed and whether it's based on the experience of the radiologist, whether it's based on the institution, whether it's based on the type of uh, software that they're using. But I will tell you, as a lawyer for 30 years, I can tell you if there's breast cancer on 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 a radiology study, on a mammogram. I can see it. And now might be you'll say it's hindsight, you know, you know, the outcome. Sure. sure. Um, and you're going back and you're looking at a particular area. And there's some truth to that retrospect versus, you know, looking at everything in retrospect versus prospectively. Um, but you would be shocked if I showed you films of different um, diseases that were missed um, by a radiologist on studies, lung cancers, breast cancers, um, you know, cancer in the stomach. I mean, it's pretty shocking. Wow. Uh, we're here with Beth Caveney, who is with Caveney and Kroll. Uh, what is your contact information? We're going to continue to take legal questions. It's kind of quiet here uh, on WGN today, 312-981-7200. What's the number at your office or your best contact information? 312-761-5585, or you can reach me at Caveney, K-A-V-E-N-Y, Kroll, K-R-O-L-L dot com. And when we come back, I'm going to talk, I'm not talking about Donald Trump, I'm going to talk about the defamation verdict for $83 million, and that's not your your area of practice, but I want to talk a little bit about, as a trial attorney, how you present a case to a jury and ask for that amount of money, and get that amount of money. <laughs> We're here uh, on WGN, the Karen Conti Show. Welcome back. We're talking about trial attorney um we're talking with trial attorney beth caveney but you know i were, i mentioned the trump verdict uh actually the jury was out just a few hours and came back with 83 million dollars in a defamation verdict i'm not sure i really want to talk about that case in any detail at all but you know you do see these malpractice cases um and they come back and there's these you know 10 20 million dollar verdicts and it's and people are appalled they're like what did the jury why did they do this 
Tell me what goes into your presentation. Say you have a case of misdiagnosis where the child maybe um, was delivered, you know, with medical negligence, and the, the child has special needs. How do you present to a jury um, the facts to to get a verdict in 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 a large sum like that? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I tell juries when I pick them is that I promise. The one promise I will make you is that the only thing I will ask at the end of this case is that I ask you to award what you think is a reasonable and fair amount of money. And I hold true to that promise. At the end of a trial, that is what I ask for. I suggest numbers. I give numbers. You know, I'll say my recommendation is $58 million based on the evidence that we heard, Um but it's your decision. And I asked you, I promised you, I told you that I would ask you to make the determination. So it's my job as a trial lawyer to give them the evidence along the way. One of the things I do is, um, I'll, t- I'll give an example. I, I represented a little girl. She was eight years old. She had lost all four limbs mm. uh, due to an untreated infection, infection um, at a Chicago uh, hospital, African-American little girl. And what I did is I worked with a prosthetic company to figure out what are the different kind of prosthetics that an eight-year-old needs to bike, to swim, to run, to walk. What, how often do those need to be changed as they grow? What if she wants to be a swimmer? What if she wants to go to college? What if she doesn't want to be in a wheelchair all the time, wants to walk all the time? And came out with a plan, a care plan, based on her prosthetics alone. And her prosthetics alone were going to be $22 million for the rest of her life. That was what the estimate was. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. Um, just for her to do what every other little child was will do throughout the course of their life. And so... We do things like develop life care plans, um, like these are the things that they're going to need. Are they going to need nursing care? How? What kind of doctors are they going to need to be seen? How often? How often are they going to need lab tests? How often are they going to require a change in equipment? What kind of care are the parents and education are the parents going to require? What happens when the parents get too old to take care of an, and lift a child with cerebral palsy? Because that happens. We need a lift system. So we try and just educate the jurors so that they can make a fair and reasonable decision. And lots of times, it, you know, from the outside not hearing the evidence, you just hear this number and you think that's right. crazy. I would never give that much like money. Like these jurors are nutty. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. I hear that all the time. They're nutty. They're out of control. There was a $38 million verdict last week. But, you, but when you're in the courtroom and you're meeting the family and you're learning what their life is going to be like for the next 70 years it gives you a different perspective and hopefully as a good trial attorney i've given you the information that you need to come to that number on your own not because i told you that was the number you know you um we're still in a male-dominated field to some extent. I think uh, law school is 50-50 male-female, but there is a lot of attrition of females in our practice. And certainly at the level that you practice, Beth, um, you don't see a lot of women doing what you're doing at the level and, and getting the success that you've had. 
So tell me, you know, just this is just for all people out there, um, you know, what, what is there something different about being a woman that you bring to the table as an attorney, you know, that's maybe different than your partner, Jeff Kroll, who's also an excellent attorney? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think as a woman, I have different life experiences than other women. And um, a lots of times in medical malpractice cases, it's the woman that's leading the charge in the case um, because it was her husband that passed away from an undiagnosed heart attack or it was her child that was injured during her childbirth or um, it was her parents that she was taking care of that something happened at the nursing home. And the more personal the issue, I think the easier to talk to another woman. And that's been my experience, especially in cases that involve female issues, female cancers, breast cancer, childbirth. You know, I have four children. Two of them were premature, and I was in the NICU for four months. I mean, I've had the experience. I've been there. I have an elderly parent, um, lost a spouse. So, you know, I mean, I've had the experiences that, okay, I've been there. I can relate to you, and I can empathize, but also advocate. Um, They just released a study of the top 10 lawyers in the state of Illinois and of the personal injury attorneys, medical malpractice attorneys, I was the only female. Um, It's Congratulations. Thank you. It's not something that a lot of women do, but I think we're um, good at it for different reasons. I think we tend to be more, um, and just talking stereotypically, um, more empathetic, um, um, maybe more maternal, um, and at a time where somebody's going through the worst, probably the worst thing in their life, um, that might be what they need is somebody that's just going to listen to them and empathize and be there with them. And um, I think I, as a woman, am particularly good at that. Yeah. And that does that's not to say that men can't be empathetic. And it can also mean that some women, you know, I, I do in family law, and I, I find that there is this idea that women are a little bit better at listening and, um, and sympathizing. Sometimes people just want to talk. Now you can't bill them for talking to them. But you do need to understand a person's problem before you can address it. You know, and you need to know all aspects of it. I think, you know, even if you, you know, I want to know why is your marriage breaking up? Why? Why do you have this issue with your husband? Like, tell me what what happened in your life that you got that got you here, because then I can understand you better. I can understand him better and maybe bring us together to try to resolve it in a way outside of the courtroom, which is always better. Of course, not it's not always possible, but um, it's instead of just going all out aggression. Yeah, I think, you know, picking an attorney is no different than picking a doctor or um, picking a spouse, or uh, picking a date for your, you know, the Super Bowl. Um, it's about relationships, and it's who you can form the closest relationship with. Um, getting past, obviously, you want somebody who's extremely experienced, extremely talented, um, aggressive, going to be able to do a good job for you. But once you do, then it's picking somebody that really speaks to your heart. And really understands you and what is important to your family. Um, lots of times people come into my office and the first thing they say is, we are not the kind of people to sue. But 
this happened to us. And I respect that an individual that they are not big believers in the criminal system, uh, excuse me, in the civil justice system. Um, But in this particular case, they want to at least explore what their rights are. And I'm happy to lay it on the table. This is what you can do. This is what your rights are. This is what you may pursue. You don't have to, but these are what your rights are, and you should be educated on them. Let's. Uh, we just have a minute. Um, you are the Illinois ambassador to the patient safety movement. Uh, tell us just briefly about what that is. We've got like one minute. The Patient Safety Movement Foundation is a great organization of hospitals, physicians, um, politicians who are sharing the mission to eliminate um, all the errors in medical care and treatment. Um, as I said. Um, you know, one in four are misdiagnosed. We're the number one country um, in maternal death and and child um, stillborn. Um, The errors um, um, have become so prevalent that this organization is geared towards just eliminating that. Their their policy is zero. They want to be a zero tolerance Uh, zero tolerance on medical errors. Study them, figure out why they're happening, and put as much of an end to it as we can. Sounds like a great uh, kind of holistic approach, again, to preventing. We talked about that with with the state's attorney. They could talk about dealing with it when it happens, but the best thing to do is to deal with it before it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Beth Kaveny, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we got a lot of nice um, texts, and uh, they want your phone number again and your contact information. Can you please give that out to uh, our audience? Absolutely. I'm happy to talk with anybody. 312-761-5585 is where you can call me, and please do. My uh, website is Kaveny, K-A-V-E-N-Y, K-R-O-L-L dot com, and you can text us through that website. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, If you want to give me a call at my office, I'm always happy to uh, help you, 312-332-7800, or better yet, WGN, at AskKarenConti.com. Have a great week. Talk next weekend.